As many people that follow the podcast know, we're obsessed with disappearances in state parks. Tonight we visit one of our favorite states to cover, Arkansas, to cover two such cases. You're listening to the Mysterious Brews podcast, and tonight we bring you the cases of John Glasgow and Rodney Letterman. County Sheriff's Office tells us that a human skull and other remains were discovered here in late February off a trail at Devil's Den. Now, deputies received a call from park rangers on February 25th saying a hiker found the remains. They were collected, packaged, and sent to the Arkansas State Crime Lab. The remains have not yet been identified. We spoke with park officials who say the area where the remains were found is three miles away from the visitor center and is actually on private land surrounded by U.S. Forest Service property. The area is generally inaccessible in Devil's Den Park. Welcome to a deep, dark, dank, moist basement somewhere in the bowels of Georgia. Well, we want to start this episode off with a shout-out that we found out about roughly two weeks ago. No, Roughly about a week and a half ago. As you know, if you follow us on our Facebook page, the one where we admit everybody, we kind of put out a uh, memorial kind of keep people in your prayers post for a lady uh, that supported this podcast. She was actually the one that we talked about that asked if the $10,000 or the $1,000 tier was still available if we had her name tattooed, like tramp stamped on us. And we said, heck yeah, but... You know, she unfortunately passed away early. She left behind two wonderful daughters, Delane and Ivy. And I want you two girls to know that I miss your mother. She was a hoot. If you ever need anything, you guys know that you can email us and we will always do what we can for you. So with that said, we want to welcome a new patron. And that is Miss Hannah Gillen, hope I'm saying that right. Uh, she is at the three dollar tier. Heck yeah! Welcome, Miss Gillen, and then of course our lovely Miss Hartline. She re-upped. You know she's always supporting us, the Bruise Crew. With that said, Coach, uh, you had a little um, excitement, some applause in your area this weekend. Well, Wait to give you give her a proper shout out next week when we're drinking the beer that she so lovingly gave us. No, I was week. talking about your personal. Oh, you talking about Tennessee going to beat Alabama come Sunday, Saturday? Oh, that, look. By the time people hear this, the Tennessee Volunteers will take down the 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 mighty Alabama and move into the top three behind Georgia and Ohio State and be number three. But Surprise, still. motherfucker! <laughs> No. no I, yeah, I was actually. Uh, yeah, I got promoted. I got a belt promotion. I went from purple belt in jujitsu to brown belt in jujitsu on Saturday. Uh, which, by training this week, I found out that means that everybody just goes harder against you. <laughs> I think that's what I've noticed from the, uh, the skill level hadn't changed. Just people just trying to beat you more. <laughs> yeah, so they can walk away going, "I'll beat a brown belt today." 
Yeah, exactly. Um, <laughs> if anybody would like a brew, a mysterious brews yard sign, please let us know. I can get you one for the low cost of thirty dollars. No, I'm just joking. That'd be Jesus. cool. That'd be cool if we could get get people to buy yard signs. Why but wouldn't anyway. they? But anyway, hey, we support the mysterious brews. But anyway. I love how you know we did those stickers, which are awesome, but we didn't put podcast anywhere on it. I know, I know. We were genius. We were just happy to. <laughs> Doesn't give anybody any indication of what we are. It's just you know. Yeah, we're just we're just happy to have stickers at that point, and then we just kind of rolled with it, and so. <laughs> That's true. You know, maybe one day we'll update the logo, but probably not. All right, so that's enough of the Bills and Eels. Let's get down to it. Like Coach alluded to in the opening, we have a double doozy for you. And if anybody that's not from the state of Arkansas ever questions why we cover so much stuff from the state of Arkansas, is because in the entire world, I would say 40% of our audience is in the state of Arkansas. I would probably say it's higher, but anyway. I don't know, man. We covered those, you know, Rebecca Gould and uh, Janie Ward and a couple others, and just people really took to liking it. And we tons of feedback from the state of Arkansas. So we do, and there's some nice people out there in Arkansas. They always are good to us, and we appreciate everything we get from the great Diamond State. So we're gonna start this double doozy off with. John William Glasgow, and he was born in Nashville, Tennessee, to the parents of Fern Carol Rosick and Thomas Cortland Glasgow. He was the youngest of five siblings. John would attend Nashville High School and graduate from the University of Central Arkansas with a Master of Business Administration degree in 1985, and somewhere along the way of getting his master's and his undergrad, he became a certified public accountant. Now, it is unknown to me how many brothers and sisters he's he has it's not really been publicized i know he has at least two brothers and one sister one is a high profile attorney in little rock that does some of the speaking for the family Uh, in 1990 john was hired by cdi contractors llc of little rock Uh, cdi contractors is an arkansas-based firm that provides construction services all over the united states it is owned partially, by department store chain Dillard's Incorporated and the estate of co-founder Bill Clark. It has built or remodeled as many as 300-plus Dillard's department stores and put up some of Arkansas's signature projects, including Bill Clinton's presidential library and the Heifer Project headquarters. Now, Dillard's had estimated sales in 2014 of $432.9 million. That would drop drastically by the end of this case, but that is also due to people just don't go to the mall anymore. Oh, you should see the mall where I'm from, man. It is the most pathetic sights you've ever seen in your life. The one here is, too. Instead of, like, tearing stuff down or anything they just built walls where like sears and jc pennies used to be there's just a wall now and behind i would love to go behind it to see the abandoned sears for some reason oh i'm the same way as you are pathetic man i I mean but i get it i don't kids don't need the place to hang out anymore nope everything's virtual dude i can never leave my couch and get stuff shipped to me even my groceries if i wanted to i know right 
In the summer of 1992, John would marry his high school sweetheart, Melinda, and the couple would buy a house on South Lookout Street in Little Rock, Arkansas. In 1995, John would be promoted to Chief Financial Officer of CDI Contractors, LLC. On January 26th and into January 27th of 2008, John would spend most of the weekend at the CDI Contractors' Office, which is located at 3000 Cantrell Road. Because the company was under audit by Dillard's, the parent company, so John was making sure that all the books were in tip-top shape. Sunday evening, he and his wife would attend a dinner party hosted by his brother Gary at a restaurant directly across the street from his office at CDI. Now, I don't know what restaurant was there in 2008. Right now, it is a La Hacienda Mexican restaurant. When the party ended, John and Melinda headed home where John would fall asleep on the couch in front of the television and Melinda would retire to their upstairs bedroom. On the morning of January 28, 2008, John is seen driving away from his home by a neighbor around 5.15 a.m. The neighbor would later state that he thought that John was just heading into work a little early. Fast forward to around 2.30 p.m., his wife Melinda is contacted by one of John's co-workers saying that he failed to show up for work that morning and they could not reach him on his cell phone. Melinda immediately starts to feel uneasy and calls John's brother Roger, asking him if he has heard from him, and when he says no, she asks Roger to come to her home. Once there, the two start making calls to John's friends and other family members hoping someone has heard from him. It is around this time that the neighbor tells Melinda about seeing John leave the house around 5.15 a.m. Now, at 5.54 p.m., Melinda would file a missing persons report with the Little Rock Police Department. Now, do they take it seriously from the get-go? Because most I mean, 12 hours is not typically standard procedure for missing persons, especially if you're an adult. They do and they don't. They respond the way it's the way I read in news articles. And here's the thing: like we say all the time, the internet can be the greatest thing and the worst thing at the same time. Here's one of my biggest pet peeves: if you're an online newspaper, I totally understand you putting your back issues behind a paywall. However, if I click on a back issue, I should not get an error four hundred four. I should get to access this article. Please subscribe for two dollars a day. But yeah, every, no every article that was released at the time of his disappearance is a bad link now. So I don't know. What I was going to say, and I'll just expound on that, was from what I can tell, they didn't really spring into action, but they kind of went ahead and come to the house. They take her information and then, you know, put out a APB, I think, on his car tag. Or a bolo, I guess, not an APB. Yeah. So... so. When the police do arrive at the Glasgow home, Melinda points out that in John's office there was a notepad and he had written their bank account number and the combination lock to this home safe on it, which is odd because Melinda knew the combination, so why would John write it down? Nothing was found missing from the personal home safe but Melinda is surprised that there is more money in there than she thought was in there. 
Now, on January 29th of 2008, John's gray Volvo SUV is found parked in the parking lot in front of Mather Lodge in Pettitjean State Park in Conway County, Arkansas. Now, this is about an hour's drive from his home, and a tourist from Coach's favorite state, Tennessee. It's a good state, man. I'm telling you. Had taken a photo, and in the photo, you can see John's SUV in the background. Now, the Time stamp on the photo showed that his Volvo was at the lodge as early as 4.30 p.m. on September 28, 2018. I had read somewhere that a park ranger said that he had noticed it around 1.30 p.m. So, basically, he's there before lunch, or by lunchtime, I guess I should say. When authorities get to the car, the car is found unlocked, his work laptop computer his company-issued cell phone, and all of his work credit cards are found inside his car. His bank account and cell phone records showed no activity on the day that he disappeared. His passport was left in his personal safe at home. Now, the Pettigeen State Park Rescue Team would launch a five-day search for John, and his vehicle was taken by police for processing. There was nothing at the car or at the lodge pointing to where John may have went off to. Conway County Sheriff's Investigator Sonny Stover said, tracking dogs may have found something, but the dog handlers couldn't tell if the scent was coming from John or just from his car. Quote, it looks like he just walked off. The oddity is that John's Volvo had been forensically examined and found to contain what the lead crime scene investigator categorized as, quote, no fingerprints like none not even hits bingo yeah that's that is definitely a crime scene then that is not an abandoned car at that point if right. i'm in charge of that investigation that is very indicative of someone wiping that entire car down yeah i mean no doubt do they declare it a crime or do they just can still consider it a missing person's they were at that time considering it a missing persons case, and that little news nugget comes out much later. And I can tell you where the conspiracy theory rabbit holes go later, but I'm sure you can guess. But anyway, the Disappeared TV show does an episode concerning this case, and it was this case was huge on Web Sleuths. It had it already had I want to say three or three pages on Web Sleuths with news article links and everything at the time of his disappearance, and then it blew up. There's probably, I don't know, five pages of people talking about the disappeared episode and then expounding on what they thought about the episode. I did not watch it, but it is stated in some of those posts on Web Sleuths that in the TV show that a server at a Waffle House in Russellville, Arkansas, was 100% certain that he had served John that morning. So authorities ought do their due diligence and bring search dogs out to the Waffle House, and supposedly the dogs hit on John's scent. Now, somewhere along this scent trail is a couple of hotels and motels and a gas station, and the dog hits at each one of those. Now, it is not really clear if those sites were fully investigated in the episode, but according to John's brother, police did go back and investigate, and no one matching John's description was said to have stayed at the motels or was seen inside the gas station. Now, my question there is, it's 2008. While the security cameras could be very grainy, 
like taking pictures of Bigfoot. There should have been some kind of security footage at the hotel motels and the gas station. And if I'm not mistaken, most Waffle Houses now have security cameras showing the register. So you would think somewhere along the line, there's video evidence of him being there at some time during the week. Surely to God there is. You would think. But depends on how long do they keep that footage? I mean, if I would say that they probably run it on a loop. If you come in with a gun, they're going to save that footage, but they're not going to save footage of random ass people for very long. There's really no point in it. That is ridiculous. I don't know. I wouldn't say ridiculous. I guess it's something to ponder is what are they in 2008? They're going to be digital, but like you said, what's the time frame of recording over it? But anyway, it soon comes to light that John was said to be in a, quote, strained relationship with the executives of Dillard's Incorporated. Along with other CDI executives, John was in negotiations to purchase half of the company, which became available after the death of the company's co-founder, Bill Clark. When Mr. Clark passed away, Dillard's had the option to buy his shares, but it was in discussions of letting CDI employees buy Clark's shares instead. Now, John was in charge of the redistribution of the shares, and he himself was looking to buy a large part of the company. Now, John's family and coworkers stated that the multi-million dollar deal weighed heavily on him. Several weeks before his disappearance, Melinda found him pacing in their kitchen as the end of the year audit approached. Dillard's had sent, quote, absolutely relentless forensic auditors to review CDI's books. She remembers John telling her that it was ridiculous. John's brother, Roger, said John had received some kind of threat on his work phone, and he himself tapped his own work phone after perceiving one of the calls as a threat over CDI's depreciation of its assets. Basically, Dillard's is trying to say that the company is worth a high amount and CDI is taking in depreciation of their construction equipment saying, no, it's, it's actually valued at this amount. Now, authorities are able to locate the tapped phone line recordings, but nothing of any value supposedly came from them. Now, Roger said his brother appeared to be happily married. So the rumors or marital problems kind of was thrown away. What was not divulged is whether or not they polygraphed his wife, Melinda. I don't know. I don't see why they wouldn't, though. I mean, right. unless she didn't let them. But I, see, you would think that they would have in some kind of article that she refused to polygraph, which would have been a huge stink, but you don't see anything about her basically being investigated and ruled out. Now, William Clark, president and CEO of CDI and the son of its founder, Bill, said John was suffering from, quote, pressure that was self-induced. The people buying in were obviously about ready to take a big financial step, and John felt personally responsible to make sure that everything went well with the deal, end quote. Both Roger, John's brother, and his wife, Melinda, both would state that him leaving checks on his desk to be mailed at a later date was not out of character. What was out of character was finding his car unlocked with his laptop in it, since it was his work laptop. Now, Tim Scott, a state parks employee designated as a spokesperson 
for the search said roughly 34 search and rescue volunteers had been part of the search for John since the vehicle was discovered at the park, along with multiple agencies that included the State Parks and Tourism Department, Arkansas State Police, Conway County Sheriff's Office, Franklin County Search and Rescue, Buffalo River National Park Service, Arkansas Game and Fish Department, and the Polk County Office of Emergency Services. So this was a huge endeavor looking for this man. Now, Mr. Scott would go on to state, quote, there was no indication that anyone else was with John Glasgow and no way to know whether he had come prepared for camping. There was nothing in his car to indicate his direction of travel after arriving at Mather Lodge, end quote. So let's touch on just some dates and timelines that we've covered so far and just, just kind of just a little review before we get into something else. Pay attention to the review. There will be a quiz after. That is correct. <laughs> and it won't be multiple choice, you little snot-nosed turds. It's going to be fill in the blank only. That's right. Did you study your vocab? <laughs> <laughs> All right. On January 28th, 2008, that's when the neighbor told police he saw John leave his home on South Lookout Street in Little Rock shortly after 5 in the morning. At 2.30 in the afternoon, Melinda calls. Actually, Melinda receives a call that he never showed up for work. A cell phone ping later that day indicated the phone was in the vicinity of Pettitjean Mountain Park and specifically Mather Lodge. January 29th, 2008, Glasgow's 2005 Volvo SUV is found in the parking lot of the lodge. At the park, his cell phone, laptop, and other belongings are still left inside the unlocked car. February 2nd, 2008, a five-day search for any sign of John is called off at Pettit Jean State Park. February 8th, 2008, the Glasgow family offers a reward of $5,000 in the case. The amount would later grow to $70,000 and was as high as $100,000 in May of 2009. February 29th, 2008, Melinda releases a copy of a letter her husband had written three days before he disappeared. It refers to tensions between executives at CDI and Dillard's CFO, James Freeman. Quote, for Freeman to come down here and say we are dishonest hurt us to the core, it reads. It goes on to say, we have never been so offended in our lives. The letter suggests that Glasgow had actually written the letter intended for Dillard's CEO, William Dillard. The letter was actually addressed to William Clark, the CEO of CDI. John was offering an example of what he would say to Dillard. Dillard's and CDI have both said John was not suspected of any wrongdoing, but his letter reveals that there were tensions over accounting practices. Quote, I'm certainly not suggesting anybody did anything to him from Dillard's, the Glasgow family spokesperson Chip Welch said, but maybe this sheds some light on why he may have gone missing and some people who ought to be asked questions about their whereabouts when they last saw him, end quote. So there's basically no trace of John after this initial finding of his vehicle at Pettigene State Park. On February 2nd of 2011, Melinda files a request with a Pulaski County Circuit Court asking that her husband be declared dead so the family can begin moving beyond the pain of his disappearance. 
The judge approves the decision on April 13th, 2011. Now, she gets a lot of shade thrown on uh, her way on some message boards for only waiting three years to have him declared dead. Now, December of 2011 into January of 2012, 43-year-old twice-convicted felon Jonathan Broner tells his lawyer and the Little Rock Police Department that he knows where John Glasgow's body is buried. At the time of this startling revelation, Brawner was serving time in the Faulkner County Jail for the attempted kidnapping of a Conway County businessman in July of 2009 and for stalking his ex-wife in October of 2010. Yeah, he's a winner. Nothing's a spare. Bronner would tell police that he had been, quote, recruited by thugs from Malvern, to whom he owed money to help bury the body of John in a bean field near England in Lono County. Despite extensive searches at the bean field by authorities and ground-penetrating radar and excavations, no sign of a body, much less any sign of John, was ever found. Now, when Brawner first started talking about his, quote, knowledge of John's case, he had been paroled after serving 202 days, most of it in a prison boot camp, for his role in the attempted kidnapping of Conway County businessman Jim Davin, which occurred, this attempted kidnapping occurred on July 31st of 2009. Brawner pled guilty to robbery and was sentenced to 20 years with 10 years of it suspended. The Conway County Sheriff's Department's investigation concluded that he enlisted two co-workers from Cud Energy Services in Conway to kidnap Jim Davin, owner of a commodities brokerage where Brawner had worked with the intention of forcing him to transfer millions of dollars from client accounts to offshore accounts that Brawner had set up. He may have watched one too many movies. One of Brawner's henchmen, J.C. Chapman, was fatally shot by Davin's stepson during the attempted kidnapping. As Coach says, play stupid games. Win stupid prizes. That's right. The other henchman, David Newkirk, is serving a 20-year sentence for attempted capital murder and attempted kidnapping. This is just a bumbling case of someone not thinking things out. Anyway, in October of 2010, four months after being paroled, Brawner was arrested for stalking his ex-wife, who testified that he had told her about helping bury a body. After being convicted, Brawner started trying to use his claimed knowledge of John's case to improve his situation. Now, according to Brawner's attorney, Frank Shaw of Conway, who told Arkansas Business Online, quote, he maintains even today that he has information. He passed this information on to the Arkansas State Police and even passed a polygraph exam conducted by the Arkansas State Police concerning the location he identified. But after the archaeological search of about two acres of the bean field came up empty, quote, some in law enforcement believe Brawner and some are very skeptical of his story. No immunity or plea bargains were offered to Brawner in connection with John's case, his attorney would say, and that would stall things coming from Brawner. I can just imagine how that went down. Look, son, we done went out there to poor Johnny's farm, and we done dug up his soybean patch because your dumb ass said there was a body out there. We've spent millions of dollars and countless man hours out there, 
and we ain't found a damn nickel. Now, you telling me you lying, or you telling me there's a body out there? Maybe they were in cahoots, and he just got his buddy's soybean field plowed for free. <laughs> What's that old joke about his dad? Dad was too old to get his garden tilled, so he called the DEA and said that he, he saw somebody burying pot out there. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, that would be even funnier. But anyway, <laughs> oh my God, that it, I never thought about that, man. That would be awesome. Hey man, what'd you do? Uh, I'm, I'm serving 20, but I got my buddy's farm plowed up. <laughs> and I got some extra commissary. Win <laughs> win. Oh man. So Bronner is sentenced to 10 years for stalking, which was a violation of his parole from the first time he was in jail and the terms of his suspended sentence on the robbery conviction of the Davin kidnapping attempt. The stalking conviction, of course, is under appeal, but Brawner was returned briefly to Conway County, where he came away with an additional 96 months. Quote, he's serving his sentence and being very patient, but he wants out as soon as possible, just like everyone else in prison, his attorney would say. (laughs) Unless you're that guy from Shawshank Redemption that's hanged himself once they let him out yeah poor brooks r.i.p brooks <laughs> so on march 11 2015 seven years after john disappeared skeletal remains were discovered by two hikers at the base of a cliff about 150 yards off red bluff drive in pettigean mountain state park the remains were found within a mile of where john's vehicle was last parked along with a wallet containing a driver's license and a credit card see this is that's strange to me because the the search was extensive. How did they miss him? Would it is possible that he wasn't there the whole time? Correct. That's that's the underlying theory is he was not there the whole time. They're saying that where he's found is approximately a mile as the crow flies, but it is a very remote area that is rocky and below a bluff that has no visible maintain trails or roads so unlikely they missed him but it's very possible i mean clearly if he was there the whole time they certainly missed him but i don't know man that's just weird now when you look at where his remains were found it is plausible for someone to quote have fallen off the cliff and not suffered any head trauma because when they find his skeletal remains they are adamant that there was no damage to his skull yeah, no gunshot wound to the skull, no uh, cracked skull, nothing at all. That is very, very strange if it was a suicide in that situation. See, and that's where it seems unlikely if you are, quote, falling from such a high cliff, your skull's not going to have some kind of trauma to it. Since Mythbusters is no longer in production, we can't throw their dummy off the cliff to see if he cracks his skull, but we may never know what the truth is. On March 12, 2015, the human remains were positively identified through dental records as belonging to John Glasgow of the Arkansas, I mean, by the Arkansas State Crime Lab. Like I said, the examiners found no trauma to his skull. They did not find any cause of death that could be determined from just the skeletal remains. Now, what comes out later is that John was considered by many forensic accountants to be a whistleblower. 
Now, supposedly, allegedly, John found out that Dillard's was hemorrhaging money since CDI was half owned by Dillard's and Dillard's half was about to be bought out by the employees of CDI, giving them full ownership. Dillard's panics and allegedly there are threats from Dillard's chief financial officer, Freeman, that are so intense, that's why John taps his own phone. Dillard's then sends out the auditors trying to find any excuse to get rid of John since he is the CFO of CDI, but they can't find any irregularities and even tell the president of Dillard's that CDI's books were, quote, immaculate. Then, mysteriously, John goes missing and the ownership change goes south, thus protecting Dillard's finances. If you always follow the money, there's some weird shit that you find. Now, keep in mind that the audits began after the second half of the founding partners passed away and his son was automatically moved into his father's position. The estate shares were what the Dillard's execs were after in order to have full controlling interest instead of the pre-death partnership. John was leading the efforts of the CDI higher-ups to purchase the shares, something Dillard's was not happy with. After John goes missing, the son branched off and started his own company, taking a large number of CDI employees with him and disassociating the family name with Dillard's altogether. Then, a couple years after John's disappearance, Dillard's had to restate their earnings, which was a reduction of net income by the tune of approximately $7 million. So, it don't look like if Dillard's had a hand in trying to unalive John that it worked out in their favor now take this for what you want but a blog on the website upstartbizjournals.com stated the following Bill Clark II was impressed by John Glasgow and recruited him to work for CDI in 1995 John discovered that CDI's then current CFO was embezzling money Clark fires the current CFO and prosecutes him John is then in turn promoted to chief financial officer. Now, Dillard's expressed concern that CDI wasn't being controlled tightly enough after the prosecution and called for a restructuring of terms. They held a meeting, and in that meeting, supposedly, Bill Dillard II, Bill Clark, the owner of half of CDI, Alex Dillard, and the CFOs of both Dillard's and CDI, which were John Glasgow and James Freeman, were all present. New terms or arrangements were established. Unfortunately, there's no written record of said arrangements, but they are thinking that it was held in the minutes of the meeting. But like everything else, when it comes to a lot of money, those details that should be on paper cannot be found. These probably included how revenues were supposed to be recorded, the percentage paid per job to CDI, and bonuses paid to CDI officers. Again, take it for what you want, but that's out there. Now, business moves forward until, like I said, Bill Clark II dies in 2007. 
And if we go and look at what Dillard's is actually looking to do is when Bill Clark passes away, Dillard's somehow had the right to buy all of his shares, but they wanted to negotiate with his son, which is William Clark, who still at that time upon his father's death retained 30% of the company. Other CDI employees would own 20%. At this point, Dillard's CFO James Freeman realizes they were improperly claiming revenues and expenses and questions the bonuses paid to John himself. James reportedly asked John if he knew about Enron and said, quote, you know the CFO there? He lost his license and he went to prison. Well, that's what's going to happen to you. And that's when Freeman sent in the three auditors who treated CDI like criminals. Now, that is what they hypothesize was the threatening phone call that made John tap his own phone lines. Again, all allegedly. Now, rumors of suicide would float out there as soon as he was missing. And we kind of touched on this earlier. If someone wanted to jump to their death, they're saying, I don't, you know, you just, and they, I mean, the people that live in Arkansas, that the Arkansas River Bridge in Little Rock is more likely a destination to ensure that you succeed at your attempt than some weird off-the-beaten-path cliff in the state park. Now, from local descriptions, the cliffs around Pettit Jean aren't like sheer cliffs. They are all kind of tree-lined with rocks and hillsides and things like that. This area in the park, would not be a guarantee that if you jumped, that you would die suddenly. Yeah, but I'm, it's hard to say, you know, oh, well, if you wanted to kill yourself, you just jump off the bridge. You don't know what was going through his mind. Maybe he wanted to walk in the wilderness to, for the one last time. Maybe he wanted peace and quiet. Maybe he wanted to be completely alone before he took his life. I mean, it's, it's hard to say. You can't. It's just pure speculation. No, that's what I was about to say. Was you can't and that's, cast doubt on a suicide based upon where he chose to do it. I just no, I and mean, that's what I was about to say. Evidence that somebody online said that since there were skeletal remains found, you're not aware of whether or not he took a bunch of medication and so that he would just basically fall asleep on the edge of the cliff, and what happened may happened. So, again, yeah. you can't throw shade at, like you said, wanting to walk into the wilderness. But what is said, though, is that if you don't buy the suicide track, it does lead to speculation that he may have set out to meet someone at Mather Lodge since it was a public meeting place and that someone kind of presents a weapon and that makes John go quietly into the woods if you believe in the foul play theory. Now, this case is very convoluted, and if you can think of a theory, it's been discussed. The disappeared episode, it seems like to me, led to more questions than answers, but they do state at the end of it that it was resolved by finding his body. So what you saying? What you saying happened? I have no idea, man. It's just, you know, if you're going to go for the suicide theory, you would think there'd be a little more evidence. Like, 
as far as looking back on certain things, like people noticing things after the fact. That typically, unfortunately, I've had a couple friends commit suicide, and in retrospect, you see a whole lot of things you missed as big warning signs that you thought were not at the time. You would think friends and family would have looked back and said, oh, well, yeah, he did start acting weird. He did this. He did that. I mean, tapping the phones would lead me to, wouldn't make me think suicide, but more of the fact that there's something going on with his business or something nefarious is going on. He's trying to keep track of something. So, See, and I'm wondering if he found something in the books that somebody was siphoning money, not say the owner, but they were overbilling, kind of like what happened in the county we worked together where they were paying for 17 fire escapes on a new school and there's only three. Yeah, exactly. Something, something along those lines. That's what I think. And then when he kind of said that he had found something, it kind of got back to the wrong person. But again, though, there's no evidence out there. I mean, that's the weird thing about this case is basically he just leaves for work and then people are out there also. Well, did anybody physically see that it was him in the car? Well, no, it's 5.15 in the morning. The neighbor's assuming that it's him in his car leaving. He only sees one person. Yeah. I mean, you can let your conspiratorial mind run amok in anything. And, of course, like I said, and you'll roll your eyes at this one, but this <laughs> is since his company built the Clinton Library, guess who else gets blamed? Yeah, of course, that big body count of his. Yep. To the Clinton Library, it's very nice. I hear it is quite marvelous, marvelous. It is very nice. Well, ladies and gentlemen, that is the first installment, and our next installment. Now that one is more could have a criminal element to it. It is odd that it took so long to find his skeletal remains, but this next one is really more missing four one one than the Glasgow case, and that is the case of Rodney Wayne Letterman. Now, Rodney was born on March 3, 1984 in Independence, Kansas. He was the son of Charles and Lisa Heater, which then became Letterman. And the family lived in Fredonia, Kansas, where Rodney went to school at Fredonia Senior High School, where he played football and basketball. Now, Rodney would spend some time working on the oil pipeline, and in 2016, he got a job working for Cobalt Boats in Nodosha, Kansas. On April 1st, 2017, he would marry Stacia Diane Majewski in Bartlesville, Oklahoma. Around the Yeehaw. same time he gets married, he gets a job working for the Hilton Garden Inn in Bartlesville. Now, located in Washington County near West Fork, Arkansas, is Devil's Den State Park, a 2,500-acre wilderness that is an attraction for tourists and outdoor enthusiasts. The park is known for its picturesque picnicking, camping, and hiking destinations. There are mountain biking and horseback riding trails. People who utilize these trails can see numerous sandstone caves, bluffs, ravines, rock shelters, and crevices that dot the area, as well as hunt for fossils, of which there are many. This can't be a missing 411 case, because Devil's Den is a state park, not a national park. Oh, but if you're a true believer in the missing 411, you'll know Mr. Pilatus does not like anything with the word devil in it, and it is cause for investigation. See, naysayer. 
I say nay. I know you do, but it's not going to do you any good. (laughs) Now, Rodney was an avid outdoorsman who loved camping, fishing, gardening, hiking, and he decided he was going to go with a buddy of his to Devil's Den State Park. So on Sunday, August 28th, 2017, Rodney sets out with his friend to hike the Butterfield Trail in the Ozark Mountains of Arkansas. Beginning in the Devil's Den State Park just outside of Winslow, Arkansas, the Butterfield Trail is a 14.9-mile loop that take hikers through creeks, up high ridges, and past waterfalls and caves. Though several miles of it are located within the state park's boundaries, the majority of the trail loops through part of the rugged Ozark National Forest. So get you some of that, you naysayer. <laughs> hey, if the only thing I know about the Ozarks is that show on Netflix, so there's a lot of drugs going on. It must be true. A lot of drugs. Just a lot of drugs, a lot of money, changing hands, Mexican cartels, people getting shot. It's crazy out there. It's like the Wild West. <laughs> now, the two friends camped in the park the night before after making the three-hour drive from Bartlesville. According to his wife, Stacia, Rodney suffered from high blood pressure, needing daily medication, and told her he had not been feeling well before leaving on the trip. Around noon, Rodney and his friend had only gotten about a mile from their vehicle before he sat down to rest, and depending on which source you read, he either stated that he was not feeling well or he stated that he was having a medical emergency due to his blood pressure. And he had forgotten to take his pill that morning. So his friend tells him to sit down, and he returns back to the car to get Rodney's blood pressure medication. But when he gets back to where he left Rodney, Rodney's gone. Now, Rodney was carrying a one and a half liters of water, but no backpack or camping supplies, allegedly, when they started the hike. A source at the parts department said he did not have a lot of hiking experience, but no one knows where this source at the parks got their information. Again, depending on what articles you read, either the Butterfield Hiking Trail is either well-traveled or nobody travels it due to the difficulty rating of the trail. Now, this site, alltrails.com, rates it as difficult with many users noting steep and rocky terrain, confusing trail intersections, and a boatload of deer ticks in the summer. Cell service is also limited to non-existent in most areas of the park. Now, Rodney and his friend go in August, which is probably the worst time to be Anywhere in the South. But this time that they're there, it's not humid and hot, but the trails are overgrown and the bugs are out in force. It was actually unseasonably cooler. But I digress. Maybe Rodney and his friend didn't think the trail would be that difficult, but coming from Oklahoma, where most hiking trails out there is relatively flat hiking, The difficult rated trail with known elevation increases is and can be surprising to novice hikers, especially considering that Rodney was not feeling well before he left and was having blood pressure issues is just a recipe for disaster. Now, like I said, the weather that day was not super hot. The high was 86 and the low was 60, but the humidity was up above 75%. Again, he was only carrying one and a half liters of water, which is not enough if you're planning on hiking the length of the trail in those conditions. One user on alltrails.com stated that while they completed the hike, 
they consumed seven liters of water. Now, the Butterfield Trail runs along the east side of the park, coming close to Highway 74, crossing it at one point. Then it seems to loop back west following the creek. Now, search and rescue teams would scour the area on horseback ATVs, on foot, deploy drones, tracking dog teams were deployed, and in all, this search included 127 workers and volunteers who searched over 4,000 acres, which is roughly about six square miles, in and around the park for seven days. Rodney's cell phone, his cell charger, and a flashlight were discovered during the search, with Arkansas Online reporting that the cell phone was found at a primitive campsite, which there are several along the trail. By September the 6th of 2017, the search was scaled back. The assistant superintendent of Devil's Den Park, a man you may remember from our previous story, Mr. Tim Scott, said that there had no reason to suspect Rodney was in danger. Quote, until we find evidence that leans to that, we're still looking for him alive. Other than the phone, the flashlight, and the phone charger, nothing else has been found of Rodney's, end quote. Basically, there's nothing else that comes out about Rodney's disappearance until roughly a year after he went missing when Lieutenant Brett Hagen of the Washington County Sheriff's Office told KNWA Fox 24 on September 19, 2018 that, quote, we have analyzed the phone and it has given us some leads, but we still have not been able to locate Mr. Letterman. At this point, we still do not know if something happened to Mr. Letterman at the park, if he got a ride out of there from another friend, or if there's foul play at play. We really can't answer that at this point. There's not enough evidence to suggest any of that has happened, end quote. Now, Hagen said that the case was at a standstill, so they're turning to the public for helping solve the case. Quote, we have stalled with investigative leads, and we would love to have some more leads. Only people who know intimate details about the case or are witnesses know what may have happened. We simply ask that if anyone has any credible information that they contact us. Help us develop new leads so we can get everyone closure for this case, end quote. This is crazy. Crazy, man. Yeah, because the way it's the way it looked, they were a mile into the trail and I got actually got on Google Earth. And we'll get into this, but they were a mile into the trail so if he sits down, you're talking, if I think you're having a medical emergency, I'm not just doing a regular walk, which I can walk a mile in under 20 minutes. So I'm kind of not technically running, but I'm getting there as fast as I can. Then I'm definitely running back to you. Dude, it takes me 20 minutes to run a mile. <laughs> but I can do it, though. I mean, don't get me wrong. I can do it. It's just going to take me about 20 minutes. <laughs> oh, man. So on February 25th, 2019, a hiker discovers a human skull off of a trail in Devil's Den State Park. Washington County Sheriff's officers respond to the site and a cursory search turns up more human remains. The remains are collected and sent to the Arkansas State Crime Lab. Now, the state park would tell KNWA Fox 24 that the area where the remains were found were, was just three miles away from the visitor center. The property where the remains were found is actually on private land that is surrounded by the U.S. Forest Service property. 
According to Assistant Superintendent of the Park, Tim Scott, he was surprised that the hiker that found the remains was even able to access that area due to the terrain being so rugged. Quote, as remote as that area is, there might be some hunters going there and a few hikers, but that location doesn't get much foot traffic or even four-wheeler traffic. Park officials did go back and look over the search records for when the initial search was performed for Rodney and found that the area where the remains were found was searched back in 2017. Officially, on March 27, 2019, Kelly Cantrell of the Washington County Sheriff's Office released a statement to the media stating that the skull and remains recovered in February of 2019 was that of Rodney Letterman. She went on to state that there is no indication of foul play at that time. Now, if you get on Google Earth and search for the Devil's Den State Park Visitor Center, and then if you watch, there's a little news clip of when they found the remains, and they post a map. If you pause the news clip and then get on Google Earth, you can see that from where his friend left him, to the visitor center, now this is a direct shot, is just under a half a mile. And the thing is, if you come off the trail, it comes into Lee Creek. And if you follow that creek downstream, it goes right to the visitor center. Now from where his remains are found to where he was left is basically three air miles east-southeast of his last position. So if he walked this distance, he would have had to cross Lee Creek, cross Highway 74, and cross Blackburn Creek. Now, both creeks are fairly shallow and could have been dry at the time Rodney disappeared. However, when you find a creek bed, you can follow it to water most of the time. Now, there had been rumors that Rodney staged his disappearance and started a new life because where his friend left him is less than a mile to the highway. We now know that if he was trying to stage a disappearance and leave the park, he wouldn't have gone the bass Ackwards route where his remains were found. It makes no logical sense. He could have crossed the highway right there off the trail instead of the convoluted straight line path they assume he, well, you would take if you were just plotting points on a map. Now, the area is very rough, and he's down to the creek that is outside the park boundaries away from the road. So this is a extremely odd. Also, if you take into account what his wife said about his state of well-being when he left for the hike and the fact that he needed his blood pressure medicines bad enough that he himself could not walk back to the car, then how is he going to stumble, bumble down three miles away? Now, people answer that question with, well, you know, scavengers take bodies and then rains and snows and i understand that but when they found the remains they did not state that it had been scavenged so if scavengers had taken his remains to that three mile outside to that three mile point i don't think a bear's gonna drag a human body three miles before it consumes it no there's no point it's a bear bear can eat whatever it wants whenever it wants and, and wherever it wants. And it can shit in the woods. <laughs> That's true. I heard about that. He asked the rabbit. It is if it, free to do what it wants. He asked the rabbit if shit stuck to his fur. The rabbit said no, so he wiped his ass with him. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. 
There is also issue with Rodney's backpack or the lack thereof. According to authorities, the friend that Rodney was with produced a picture, a selfie, which now this friend has never been identified. And in the picture that it was released, you just see the top of his forehead. But this picture is showing Rodney and the friend right as they're about to start on Butterfield Trailhead. And in that picture, Rodney is clearly wearing a very large backpack. Almost all the information that I could find stated that he only had his water bottle, his phone, a flashlight, and his charger with him at the time of his disappearance. So where the fuck did his backpack go? Are we confirmed that that picture was taken that same day? It's just... Time stamped, and the friend been, says that that's... Could, oh, okay, so it is time stamped and everything. Yep. Oh, that's very interesting. Yes, and... What else is this interesting is his missing poster from a Facebook page called Our Missing Hearts says that Rodney and his friend had camped the night before, which we had discussed, making it seem very unlikely that he would have had or not had his backpack. Now, it is considered, some people do state that they may have broke camp, took all their stuff back to the car and then decided to make the trail, knowing it was a loop, get back in the car and head home. Which is plausible. But again, if you've got a backpack with supplies, why not? I don't know. Now you're getting into what if, so I'll stop. But anyway. So did Rodney have a medical emergency and fall into a hard-to-reach area, or did he become disoriented and somehow evade searchers that covered six square miles and the area in which his body was found? Now, this is strictly background information, and I'm just putting it out there because with a lot of the missing 411 cases, there's some shade thrown about the person's background. There seems to be some glossing over some information when it comes to painting people in a different picture. So this is just FYI. I don't think it has anything to do with his disappearance. I think it has to do with him working on the oil pipeline. But, however, whichever way you want to slice it, he did have a drug conviction and subsequent probation violation in Kansas on January 16th of 2016. There is nothing else out there about those convictions. The probation violation I was able to find, and that was a misdemeanor. I don't think it has anything to do with it. Like I said, he was working on the oil pipeline, and there's some rough rough cods out there. So, I mean, and he was young back then when he was working on the pipeline, and it sounds like that's when, after that arrest, is when he got his job working for that Cobalt Boats in Neodosia. So, there is zero theories out there about this one. Because he's missing for three years before he's found. Is that right? Yes, three years. Yeah. Just three miles from where he was left and a half a mile, let's just say for the sake of an argument, if he walked back down the trail and his friend did not overestimate, he's a mile and a half from the visitor center and could walk a creek bed so it's not hard walk. What is said is that he could have been disoriented if he didn't take his blood pressure that morning his blood pressure medicine that morning. But the way that one of the articles stated was that he kind of just passingly said, oh, shit, man, I forgot to take my blood pressure medicine last night. So I don't know if 
he was really having a medical emergency or if he was just one of those things, damn, I forgot to take my medicine. I guess I'll take it when we get back. And that's when the friend said, well, shit, we're just right here. I'll just run back to the car and you sit down. I'll be right back. Yeah. Because I feel like if it was a medical emergency, not only would he have went to get the blood pressure medicine, he would have also gotten a first aid kit, which if they were camping with those large ass backpacks, you know, they're going to have, and he would also have raised alarm to anyone that he could see on the trail. Now, on Reddit, there are a lot of people that are from the area or have hiked Butterfield Trail, and they said that it is one of the most piss-poor signed trails in the park. That the there was a couple that posted on there that they had actually taken the wrong trail and didn't realize it until they came to a fork where there shouldn't be a fork on the map and then backtrack and found another couple who had made the same mistake they did and convinced them to turn around. They did say that the park after Rodney's disappearance and subsequent remains were found that they did go in and clean up those trails and put better signage out. But again, this one is more missing 411 because you know, he's within 20 minutes he's gone. And I mean, gone crossing two creeks and a highway gone. If you, if he walked straight to where his body was found and passed away. Yeah. Just implausible. I mean, almost implausible that you get that far, you know, you could do that in that short amount of time. And if you pull up the area on Google maps and I know things are different in the summertime, but if you hit a road, you can follow that road to a house. And basically where the, if you draw a straight line from the trailhead, to where his body was found, where you crossed that road, if you went south on that road, there's a house or a farm. If you go north, there's a church and a house across the street from the church. So it's not like he was out of touch with civilization. There was plenty of, I guess, help readily available. But again, with all these missing 411 cases, nobody knows what the fuck's going on. So, ladies and gentlemen, that is the cases of Mr. John Glasgow and Mr. Rodney Wayne Letterman. Coach, what says you? Man, I got nothing, dude. It's like, I mean, definitely 411 worthy. I'll take it back about the state park. So you're retracting the nays? Yeah, I am. I'm going to have to, I guess, because, yeah. Vanish that quickly? It's crazy. Now, there is another case, a famous case, that happened in the late 40s, early 50s with a nine-year-old girl that we may cover at a later date in Devil's Den State Park, and that one will warp your mind, ladies and gentlemen. She kind of disappears, reappears, disappears, and then is found again alive. So, But anyway, Devil's Den State Park has a lot of weird stuff, and the way it was described is basically it's a state park in a big valley or bowl that's only two miles wide at its widest point so very odd area indeed so recommendations i know you're chomping at the bit to give yours oh yeah man released yesterday on netflix is the watcher a case that we have covered on our glorious podcast about the man who's sending anonymous letters to a brand new homeowner's and I'd watched the preview before we started, and, man, it looks good. And as soon as we get off here, I'm starting it. 
it's a six part, a seven part series, but the preview said uh, season one preview. So I guess there's going to be more than one season, but yeah, it's crazy. That's my recommendation. My recommendation is don't go hiking alone because my in-laws are taking like a two week trip out West and they're going to go up Pacific coast highway. And then they're going to go into Yosemite or somewhere on their way home. And I'm like, Nope, mm -mm, mm, no, not me. Not going to do it. Not going to do it. So (laughs) I just say, don't hike, go visit, go look around, make sure you're in a party of like more than two people and sleep at a, a hotel. I mean, they got free continental breakfast. You can't get that out in the woods. No doubt. All right, ladies and gentlemen, Coach, do you have anything else you would like to add to this week's episode? I just hope that by this, by the time you hear this, the greatest college football team in all the land will be in the top three. Go Vols. I kind of want it to happen so that we can crush your little hearts when you come rolling into Athens. But oh no, not gonna- we'll see. All right, ladies and gentlemen, <laughs> deuces.